our third year now, and with the expansion into the Sheriff's Department and the Florence Police Department and the city, Kenyon City Police Department as well, some of you may or may not know that we've been invited to do chaplaincy into all of the first responders, our church, and there's people that God has raised up, and so be praying for them and for that, but next year as we've expanded this, we, we have a vision of this banquet that we're doing today, which is an annual thing, being for all of the first responders in our community as we're networking together, and they want to even network together with us and through us, and so it's a real cool thing that God's opened these doors, but it's, it's, it's called, the, the banquet is a, is a Valentine's uh, theme thing for them, for the firefighters and their wives, and uh, there will be about 40 of them there. Uh, plus the staff that's coming to help and serve. So keep that in prayer. But um, I, I get to do the message there tonight as well. And God brings really cool fruit out of it. Last, last year when we did that, uh, the, the, the people in the fire department, the firefighters and some of their wives, actually it was the wives. I'm going to have to be completely honest. The firefighters' wives came afterwards and said, hey, we, we, want, a marriage con- we want you to do some marriage counseling, some marriage conference for us as a hall. And last year we were able to do uh, two separate weekends. We did a marriage conference here at the church. Uh, and it's a full-on Christian-based marriage conference that we did. And we had many couples attend from our church as well as from the fire department. It was a really, really cool opportunity. So be praying that again through this time that God would open the door. We can minister to our firefighters, and then how that may uh, bleed into the other ministries and chaplaincy that God's opened up for us. But all of that to say, uh, it's, it's, I love that it's Valentine's Day, and we're coming up next week, and we're reading this letter about a, a church that has um, uh, left their first love. And just a short message to, to us as husbands and wives, as spouses, and it's the kind of the format for the message that I'm even given tonight is that you guys, men, I'll just speak to you and women, you probably know it too, but I relate better to the guys in this, but you remember when you met your wife and you remember that, that passion and that zeal that came with that first love, right? And you guys know that over time, uh, uh, voices can be raised off and on over the years, tears can come. Off and on over the years, we can hurt one another, we can offend one another, and, and um, the truth is, is marriage is a thing that if you were not giving it constant attention and pouring into marriage in a way that Scripture says on a daily basis into our spouse's lives is that love that we once felt and had, and, and I'm not just speaking about the feeling part of it, but the overall commitment to it can, can, can fade, it can wane. And um, certainly that can be true, as we read in this letter here, even with our relationship with Christ. And, and I pray that it would not be so in our marriages. And if that has happened in your marriage or you feel that, um, this, these same things, these same principles that Jesus speaks to in regards to um, returning to your first love, that, that passion, that zeal, that commitment, that that forsaking all others kind of mentality that we had when we first met one another can be re-entered into, into your marriage, and most for certainly with your relationship with the Lord. And the truth is, is we live in a world that is full of temptations. We live in a world that's full of discouragement, and, and that can affect not only our earthly relationships, but also it can affect our relationship with our Father in heaven. And so, um, may this message this morning in these words that we read here, I'm sure as it was a convicting thing, is also an encouragement to the, to, the, to the church in Ephesus. I pray that it would be so for us. So you guys have heard it said that you, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? And the idea behind this scene, of course, is that the outside appearance may not always be accurate reflection of what's going on on the inside, and sadly, this, this thought can, can hold true uh, uh, with people, and, and, um, but also with churches. That thought can also apply to a church. And a church that, especially in, I think in the world that we live in today, and we see so much of this, and, and, and even looking back, we had the opportunity to travel through Europe a while ago, and man, there's some beautiful cathedrals there. We even went to the, the uh, 
is it St. Peter's? And no, what is it, the one, the Vatican. We got to go to the Vatican, and we went to the cathedral there. And I mean, you, you look at the, the beauty and the, the architecture, and at one time, these, these ancient cathedrals that, <clears throat> that are lining all over Europe, they're, they're like, they're monuments now. People, they don't even have a church in them, right? And today we have um, a, a, a perverted equivalent here in the United States, I think, and, and not to say that there's not life in all of them, but there's, there we have this mega church phenomenon that's going on, and, and, and they we're, they're, we're building huge, enormous buildings and that are housing lots and lots of people. And, and, and I'm not really saying that um, they're necessarily inerrantly evil or wrong, but you can look at these buildings, and they can be large and fancy, and, and um, the, the, the outside appearance may not be a reflection of what's really going on on the inside, right? Because you can have these big fancy buildings that are housing a lot of people, and the truth is, is they can be a spiritually dead or a dying congregation. Can. And on the contrary, a church that meets in a modest building that, 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 that it, it, it might contain a congregation that is spiritually alive, a congregation that is is moving for the Lord. So the outside appearance doesn't always reflect as an accurate reflection of what's going on on the inside. Likewise, now hear this, because it's not just about the building, it can just be about appearances as well, just like we know with people. I remember someone that presents themselves in a certain way and you get to know them and you're like, you're not at all like you pretend to be, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Maybe you don't say that to their face, but that's what you think, right? And, and um, likewise, a church... A church can even do many good works, guys. A church can do many good works. A church can even adhere to sound biblical teaching and still be spiritually did. Why? It's the same reason for the, the reason why the Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Corinthians, and it's because they have no love. And if we're looking at this in regards to a church and our relationship with the Lord, we need to look at also, like I said, in, in relationships with one another, especially in a marriage relationship. There can be a marriage relationship that looks really well on the outside. And, and have no love and still be an utter mess, right? And in these next two chapters, we read and see how this was even true with the early church, this church that we read about here, Church of Ephesus. And in regards to the seven churches as a whole, mentioned by name in these next two chapters, chapters 2 and chapters 3 together, these, these churches who received a personal message from Jesus, what we see is we see that five of these churches had an outward appearance that would have given the impression that everything, given this outward impression that everything was going well, that everything was good. But upon a deeper inspection, we see that there were some serious problems that needed to be dealt with. And in these messages to these seven churches, we get to see them through the eyes of Jesus. That's a pretty awesome thing. Through these seven messages to these seven churches, we get to see them through the eyes of Jesus. And what do I mean by that? By Jesus who is able to see beneath the surface and look into the heart. And it's important for us to understand that, that each letter was addressed to a specific church and the letter was intended for the church to deal with specific issues they were having and this is the first application of the text, okay? In context, the literal interpretation as we see it is to seven specific churches. But these letters also have another purpose and in light of verse seven, we see if you look there that these messages in these letters have a benefit for any church, for every church, for, for anyone or for everyone who has an ear to hear. And that simply means someone who has a willingness to find out and learn what Jesus is saying. And I pray that that's us this morning, not only individually, but as a church. And this is the second application of the text. So while we're reading and studying these messages, I think we must be willing to Allow the Lord to examine our own lives and to examine maybe our own church and apply these messages to our church and to our lives personally. And the other thing to point out is that there's, there's a third application that many read into, and I think it's a correct reading into, and I think it's a, and, uh, and we'll highlight this a little as we go through, but there's also a prophetic application. And, and, and one of the reasons we need to look at that is because this is a book of prophecy, right? This book of Revelation, and 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 it's a prophetic has prophetic application as these letters 
is, is they also appear to speak to the church as a whole, which we know the church as a whole, and I don't mean just the church of the, as a whole in the present tense, but I mean the church as a whole since its conception until even today and, and beyond whenever the, that end will come. And we know that the church began on the day of Pentecost. And the Bible tells us and teaches us that the church as we know it will end on the day of the rapture. In other words, as we look back on the history of the church and we see these, these various stages of the church throughout church history, the things that the church has gone through, we see that each letter, I think, has an application to uh, the church in regards to stages of spiritual fault, stages of spiritual failure, and even stages of spiritual growth, and even, even stages of successes that the church down through time has gone through and in the future will go through. And in light of these, these three avenues of application, we got to keep this in, 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 in our, the front of our minds. And, and you're going to hear me repeat this over and over again as we go through this book. But man, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing, the plain things, the, the main thing. And um, remembering that the book of Revelation teaches us primarily about the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? <clears throat> Specifically about the nature and the person, the person of the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ. But it's also a book that tells us about this future judgment of God that is to come. So as we study through the first letter, this first letter to the church of Ephesus, we should take note of the fact that we're seeing God judge his own people like we talked about last week before he judges the rest of the world. And remember what Peter had written in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It affirms this. It speaks to this way in which God operates in general. And he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it first begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, in each one of these letters that are written to the seven churches, if you're taking notes, there's going to be an outline for every single letter for the next few weeks and the next two chapters that we go through. Because in each letter, there's this similar pattern that takes place. There's seven different divisions in each letter. And each of these letters should really be broken down to these divisions, and this is what we're going to do this morning. So if you're taking notes, we should first notice that there is a greeting or we might say an address to, to, to a, a specific congregation. Then Jesus introduces himself with a description of himself, and this is followed by a statement, that, um, uh, a statement regarding the condition of the church, okay? And then a, 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 after there's a, this statement given the, the condition of church, there's this verdict that's declared, this verdict that is proclaimed from Jesus regarding the condition of the church. In other words, Jesus says, this is what you're like, and this is what's going to happen to you. Then this, de this declaration of this action that needs to be taken, to there's this declaration of the action that needs to be taken to correct the problem. And so we see that the Lord or God's intention in this isn't just to point out the bad and to bring some kind of form of punishment or discipline. It's to bring people, to bring the church, to bring us, to even bring our church into the place of, of righteousness, to the, to the place where there's right living going on in us and amidst us, in, in, in the midst of us. And then each letter concludes with a promise to the overcomer and a call to hear what has been said. And with that, in verse one and two, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I actually want to just stop with that one verse. So in this first verse, we read the greeting. This is the first of the seven different divisions. We have the greeting. And in this greeting, we're given this, this ultimately this description of Jesus and, and to the church of Ephesus is to whom this first letter is addressed to, and, 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 and with it is this, it, it's this second section, if you will, of the, of the, of the uh, book of Revelation. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a different beginning, a new beginning within this one book. And there's, there's different sections throughout the whole book of Revelation. And in chapter, chapter 1, you can look back in chapter 1, and specifically in verse 19, which kind of defines these these different sections in the book of, of Revelation, John was told to write, write the things which he had seen, the things which are, 
and the things which will take place after this. We talked about he wrote to us in chapter 1 the things which he had seen. And he'll do a little more of that, but specifically that's division 1. Then division 2, the things which, which are is, is literally the time that we're living in today. Which began, like I said earlier, about 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. The things which are. And like I already said, it'll continue on to the day of the rapture of the church. And, and, and many people refer to this time as the church age. Or they will even say the age of grace. And, and, and without getting to a big theological study or doctrinal things regarding that, I'll just simply say this is, this is the time, clearly, without a doubt, this is the time that is referred to as the church age or the age of grace, and it is a time that God has set aside for us to be saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, okay? And, and, and this age of grace is spoken of in many places throughout the Bible. For example, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, it says this. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so as we look at this, these things which are, starting with the, 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 this letter to the, the Ephesians, I want to point out and, and give a little bit of background. Ephesus at this time was a major city, okay? It wasn't a rural city. It was a major city in Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, which we've talked about, is located on the Castor River, and, and specifically as it flowed into the Gulf of the Aegean Sea, where there was at this time, history teaches us, a great seaport. And this great city was known, it, was, it had world renown in regards to religious, cultural, and economic things. It was, it was truly the center of the region that it was in. And the ancient historian Pliny the Elder tells us that Ephesus had a population of about uh, a quarter of a million people at this time, and that, and that John, um, at, or specifically at the same time, we know that it was, the reference to that is at the same time that John was imprisoned here in Patmos. Ephesus, as we look at it in regards to um, what it was at the time, it, it was home to the Temple of Artemis. You remember, this was this is a, a Greek culture, a Greek people, and 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 it was a home to the Greek goddess, the goddess of. Uh, well, we'll talk about it. But Artemis was also sometimes called Diana. You may have heard of that of, of her as as one of the goddesses, and she was considered. And uh, um, this temple, if you study it out, it was con it's been considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world housed here in Ephesus at the time of the ancient world. This temple was an archaeological masterpiece as it was constructed completely out of marble, uh, including all of its 127 pillars that stood over 60 feet in height. 36 of these fillers, pillars were overlaid with gold and jewels. Think about that. 60-foot-tall marble pillars, 127 of them, 36 of them, overlaid with gold and jewels. Now, Diana, who is also known as Artemis, she was the Greek god of fertility, okay? And in the temple, there was a huge statue of her, and people would travel from great distances to come to Ephesus and worship this pagan goddess with uh, temple prostitutes and commit sexually lewd acts. And according to the account found in Acts chapter 19, it was the Apostle Paul who founded the church in Ephesus, and he remained there teaching in Ephesus for two years before returning back to Jerusalem. And once Paul had left Ephesus, we know that he then sent Timothy back. He sent Timothy back there to take his place and lead the church. And according to church history, it was the Apostle John then who eventually came to pastor the Ephesian church prior to his exile here of what we read about in the book of, of, of Revelation, his, his, his exile to the island of Patmos. And I point these things out, guys, to draw our attention to the fact that, that Ephesus was a place of great privilege. It was a place, if you will, of great preaching. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, Timothy, these guys were the ones who were pastoring the church there in Ephesus. 
And in this first verse, we see Jesus address his letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And like I mentioned last work week, the, the Greek word that's used here is the Greek word angelos. And it was a word used to describe simply a messenger. And in the instance of where these letters are, 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 are how these letters are written and who they were meant for, we can conclude that the angel being referenced here, or the person who's being referenced with this title of angel or angelos, is really the pastor of the church, the one who would deliver the message of God to his people. And as Jesus went on in verse 1 to introduce and describe himself to the Ephesian church, he, he said, he is the one here, right? Now we get this description of Jesus. You have the introduction, you have the description of Jesus. He's the one that holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And at the end of chapter 1, verse 20, if you'll look there at the very last verse of that first chapter, we are told that the seven stars are, are the seven angels of the churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the point that Jesus is conveying to the early church, the same point that he's conveying to us is the simple fact that he's the head of the church. That's what this description of him is revealing to us, that he's the head of the church, just like it tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. It literally says that he's the preeminent one in that passage. And this preeminent one, he as the head, is calling his leaders and his church body into this place of accountability. That's what we're reading here. And so the picture of Jesus holding the pastors in his hand illustrates the fact that the Lord is the one who is in charge. And, and because they are being held in his right hand, we see that God ultimately, what we're being told is he's got the angel in the church there that he'll hold the pastor of the church accountable for what he says. He'll hold the pastor of the church accountable for what he does with God's people, considering that the right hand of God in Scripture is always is, is more often than not a metaphor for the omnipotence of God, the power and the authority of God. Remember, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 makes it clear that the pastor, it tells us there that the pastor is responsible as a shepherd to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And, and you know this as well as I do, that wherever there is responsibility that is given, there's accountability to the one who's given that responsibility. But in addition to holding the, passenger, the pastor, the messenger, the angelos responsible, Jesus, who is, who is also holding the lampstand, which represents the church, is going to, what he's telling us, he's going to hold each one of the members of the church, each person in the church, also accountable or responsible for their behavior, for their witness of him, and for how they use what they've been equipped with for his glory. In short, Jesus wanted the Ephesians to know he's in charge. And that he, in addition to him being in charge, he says, I know what's going on. That he's intimately aware of what really is going on in their church. He sees behind the fancy building. He sees behind the, the, the good works to the, to the intent of the heart. He knows what's going on. And as the head, as the one who is in charge, he's letting them know that he's going to deal with them justly. Now this knowledge of Jesus holding his leaders in his hands and, and walking, I think, among his church, I think that should be a comforting truth. I think it should be an exciting truth, really. Because it reminds us that Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, that he's really watching over us. He just didn't go up to heaven and waiting for that day when he's going to be sent back. We know that he ascended into heaven, and the angel spoke to the disciples and said, hey, he, I, I imagine he said, close your mouths, because I'm sure they were like, right? Close your mouths. He's coming back. Go and do what he said. And, and, and while he is there in heaven, he's looking over us. He is concerned about what's going on in our lives and with our churches and, and, and with the, the, the things that he's given to us. He's caring for us. And it points out the fact that Jesus is not only watching over us, but it's that he's here with us. And I think even more importantly, it lets us know that he wants to be with us. He wants to be with us. I think it's one thing to know that God sees us. That's a cool thing. 
but that he also wants to be with us, that's a pretty cool thing too. Even though he sees us, he still wants to be with us. Sometimes we feel like that. And this is an important thing for us to remember because every time we gather together, we need to be conscious of the fact that Jesus is with us. And we should look expectantly for him to reveal himself to us. Is that what we're doing this morning? Do we believe that he's here among us? And if he's here among us, do you not want to see him? Do you not want to hear from him? I do. And the point is, Jesus is our leader, he's our protector, he's our provider, and if Jesus is not here with us, then there's no reason for us to come together. Think about that. If he's not here, then why are we here? And we might as well close the doors and go home if he's not here, because Jesus is the one who we worship, right? He's the one we worship, and, and Jesus is the one who we need to hear from, he's the one we need to see. It's all about Jesus, and to have him meeting here meeting with us and holding on to us and walking among us is a wonderful blessing. And I think that's what we can glean from this first verse. And then in verse 2, we read on, and Jesus says, as he, as he speaks to the church and first tells him this awesome description of, of him being in the midst of them, him holding on to them, him knowing what's going on with them, he says specifically, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear, you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So as Jesus begins to speak to the condition, this third part of it, to the condition of the Ephesians church, he speaks praises. That's what, he's meant, that's what he comes to give them a message of. Encouragement and praise. And as we break these scenes down... If you, again, if you're taking notes and want to kind of categorize it out, there are four specific traits that are mentioned here with the Ephesian church or things that the Ephesian church possessed that Jesus commends them for. Hopefully things that are found in our church and in our lives as well. And first Jesus said, I know your works, your labor. And from this we see that the Ephesian church was this service-oriented church. And that's such a, an, an awesome thing to take note of. They were a service-oriented church. And apparently they were busy doing the works of the Lord. In fact, we are told that they, here's the, here's the description of that, the verbiage that's used in regards to their service, that they labored in doing them. And this literally means that they toiled to the point of exhaustion when it came to doing good works. In other words, they kept doing the good thing that God set before them even when doing the good thing was tough. In fact, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, he had previously written to the church and he had told them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he said this, For we are his workmanship, church, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So a church of, of, that follows after Christ should be a service-oriented church. And apparently they, they had received this admonition from Paul years prior to this because this is what they had set their face to doing and Jesus noticed it. And because of this, we should take note of the fact that the good works, that, take note of the fact that good works are a large part of following after Jesus. They're not a condition for salvation, but it, the, the, it is a condition in, in servant-to-Lord relationship. It is a large part of following after Jesus. It's a large part in regards to submitting to his lordship and seeking to glorify him in all things that we do as we wait for his return. Waiting isn't just simply sitting on your behind and doing nothing. Waiting is doing the things that God's called you to do, the things that he's appointed for you to do. And for each one of us, there are good things that God has prepared. There are good things that God has provided for us to do, and we need to be about them. In light of this, God, I think we should take note of the fact he has. He's blessed all of us in many different ways. He's blessed all of us in many different ways. And he's given us material gifts and spiritual gifts so that we might in turn give for God and serve for God those whom he puts in our path. 
But the truth is, is, if we're not allowing for these gifts and talents that God has given to us, the things that God has provided for us and the work that God has done in us, if we're not allowing for that, those things to flow into our lives and, through, and, then, and then through our lives, you know what? You've heard the saying probably before, this analogy, you're going to become stagnant in your relationship with Jesus. And, 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 and it's like this. It's like if water runs into, a, a, if, if a river runs into a body of water, and it's not allowed to run out, uh, we call that a pond. And that if the water's not running out, then the water that, that is running into it could be fresh and, and life-giving, but once it gets in there and becomes stagnant, it becomes putrefied. It becomes useless. In fact, it starts to smell bad. And if, if stagnant water is, is left, if water becomes stagnant, it becomes contaminated with bacteria, it can become disease-ridden, and it's poisonous to anyone who drinks of it. And yet Jesus tells us in John chapter 4, Jesus tells us that he is living water. That's the water, the spiritual water that he's pouring out into our lives. And, and when we allow for what God has poured into our lives to flow out of our lives, then, then we're going to be spiritually healthy, and we will then also be a blessing to those around us. But if not, then, then maybe you're contaminating those who come to drink of what God has poured in. The second thing that Jesus praises the Ephesians for, if you look here in verse 3, is their patience. I'd rather not talk about this one. <laughs> Saying that they had perseverance and had not become weary. Wow. That's, that's huge. There was great persecution going on at this time. People's lives were being taken. They were being arrested. They were being tortured. And, 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 and all kinds of other just everyday problems that they were having like what we have as well. Kids were getting sick, just like our kids get sick. They were having financial struggles, just like we have financial struggles. They were probably having relationship issues at times with their own spouses as well. Maybe their employer was not being kind or fair. In addition to the, 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 to the state of the church at the time in regards to the persecution that was going on, they had the everyday trials of life of, of, of that we face as well as when it comes to being followers of God. And he says to them, God says to him, I see your patience, you have perseverance, you've not become weary. And we know that the Bible often illustrates those of us who follow Jesus, it, it, we're referred to as, as, as pilgrims, as sojourners, Right? In light of this, we should not forget that our time here is temporary, and as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we should not forget that we're journeying through this life and we're headed into the next. And the Apostle Paul often compares this spiritual journey that we're on to a race, does he not? And, in, and as we look at that analogy, that, 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 that illustration that Paul gives us in that, we've got to understand that this race that we're in, first of all, which has a finish line, which has an eternal prize, this race that we're in is not a sprint. It's not. Rather, it's like a marathon, and there is a need for us, like marathon runners, to endure. There's need for us to persevere in order to make it to the finish line and receive the rewards that our Heavenly Father has waiting for us. Listen to the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, it says this, verse 36. The author of the, the book of Hebrews writes, and he says, he says, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And again, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, similarly, it says this. It says, this is an admonition to, to run. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, apparently, the church in Ephesus had endurance. This is what Jesus gives them praise for. They had endurance, and they would not give up when things got hard. And Jesus noticed this. And if Jesus noticed that then, you think he's still noticing these things with his church today? Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we don't feel like giving up at times. It's that we make a decision not to. I've recently 
even before the surgery, started running again, and now I'm still running. And I'm telling you what, there's, there's never a time where I don't feel like giving up. Even when I'm putting on my running clothes, I feel like giving up <laughs> before I even get out the door. You know, and I get in my mind, I get this distance that I'm going to run, and then I get to, I'm like not even there, and I'm like, okay, just run to that next stop sign. And sometimes that's, that's how you have to, to do your spiritual walk as well. And Jesus knows, and that's why he commends these things, and we're admonished to keep going when, we're, when we feel like giving up. And, 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 and the Ephesians, when, when they were faced with the trial, they just didn't throw in the towel and say, I give up, it's not worth it. And that's what happens when you give up. When I, when I don't make it to the destination that I want while I'm running, what did I do? I said, oh, it's not worth it. I only need to run three, not five. You know, whatever. Or I just need to lay in bed. It's not worth it. <laughs> but sadly, in regards to life and spiritual things, guys, there are many people who do give up, right, when things get hard, when they encounter afflictions for their beliefs. But we can't give up when things get hard. So, we, so when we become weary or discouraged, because that happens when we become weary, when we become discouraged, here's the key. We must understand that being a Christian is not something we're trying out. It's not something we're trying out. It's not even something we do. It's who we are. It's who we are. I'm not a runner. something I'm trying out. (laughs) Sometimes I do it. But Christianity is not like that. It's who we are. And so, so no matter what difficulties we go through as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we got to look to eternity. you got to look to the finish line. you got to keep our eyes on the things that are above. And as we look, as we do this, as, 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 as we look, and as, as we look for Jesus' return, and as we live for him. And like the Ephesians, we must have perseverance. We must have patience. The next thing we read that Jesus commended them for is this right attitude towards evil. I love this one. This right attitude for evil. And I think we all do to some degree love this one because we love justice and righteousness. We just don't always like it when we are the one, you know, in this place of being held accountable. But we love righteousness. We love justice. And and this church, they were committed to those things, they were committed to, right, committed to righteousness, they were committed to spiritual justice, and they were committed to purity, and in doing so, these guys, this church, as Jesus recognized that we can deduce or we can deduct that they stood against and stood for the things that Jesus stands against and the things that Jesus stands for. They did not, it says, he said, you did not endure with those who are evil. In other words, it says, you didn't put up with it, you didn't tolerate that. They were the type of church that would enact, even within themselves, church discipline when necessary. And if there was sin in their lives, if there was sin in the camp, they didn't simply ignore it. Oh, everybody else is doing it, it's okay. That wasn't their mentality. And if there was something going on that was not of God or wasn't bringing glory to God, they didn't just close their eyes till it, they dealt with it. And in verse 6, we're told that one of the things the Ephesians were, Ephesians were willing to deal with, it's mentioned by name here, is this, this, this thing that had made its way into the early church when we study it out. This is referred to here as the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And this word Nicolaitan, it literally means this, the overcoming of the people. And there's a lot of speculation what this sect, how it all came about, but it was a sect of religious people who had infiltrated the early church and, and they had set themselves up as a hierarchy of clergy that ruled over the people. And with this, with this kind of hierarchy, with this overcoming of the people, came this idea that, that they put this into place, that you had to go through an, er, an earthly priest, mainly them, and, and not Jesus, in order to commune with God. Sound familiar? And in the, Ephesians, in the Ephesian church, it tells us that Jesus said that you hated this. And they would not bear with these evil deeds, their false teachings, or apparently any other evil thing. In addition to having the right attitudes towards evil, they had a desire for the truth. And I would suggest to you, propose to you, that those things go hand in hand. You're not going to have a right attitude for evil unless you have a desire for the truth. 
And, 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 and in doing so, they, we know this because it, they would expose and reject these false teachers. They did not put up with those who would come into their fellowship and teach something that was not true. In fact, they didn't believe someone just because they claimed to be from God or claimed that they had a message from God. They tested what was being said with what we would refer to as the whole counsel of God. Keeping it in its proper context equally is important for all of us. And basically what, the, what we're told here is they were being watchful, and we need to be watchful. We need to be watchful of those who are not teaching the truth and trying to lead those who God has put in our care astray. The early church had false teachers. The early church had false teachers. We have false teachers today. And the apost- we have false teachers in this town, in some of our churches And the Apostle Paul was constantly warning the churches as a whole, the churches as a whole, to beware of them. In his letters that he wrote, Paul, to the churches, he says, beware of these guys. And in Acts chapter 20, where we read where Paul had, uh, had met with the Ephesian elders before he went on to Jerusalem and was arrested and taken to Rome, he warned the Ephesian elders about false teachers to this very same church, these very same leaders. And in verses 29 through 30 of Acts chapter 20, he said this, For I know this, that after my departure, he called them savage wolves. He said, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And it appears that the Ephesians had heeded Paul's words of warning and set their heart and their mind to the face of of knowing the truth and living in the truth because they, 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 they heeded the words of Paul and exposed these false teachers for the liars and the deceivers that they were. And Jesus commended them for that. And so at a first look, guys, the church in Ephesus had this appearance that everything was right on. Man, if we stopped there, we would be like, man, we want to be just like them. And in these areas, I think we do. We want to be just like them. But not apart from the right heart motivation. Not apart from the right heart attitude. And that's what we go, we go on to see. And, and Jesus, who is able to see into our hearts, went on in verse 4 and said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. So think about this. Think about it. Think about it in regards to our own church. And I'm not saying this is our church, but it, we can have the wrong heart attitude in why we do what we do. We can have the wrong heart attitude individually, we can. We're all prone to this and maybe even somewhat guilty at times of this. Don't think that we're not. I don't want us to be that place where we go, oh, this, we're just the good stuff. <laughs> we're human. We're not perfect. And so in spite of all, listen, in spite of all the good they were doing, there was something very wrong and Jesus bluntly rebuked them but lovingly for what he had seen. Notice that Jesus said they had left their first love, not that they had lost their first love, and I I know there's a lot of discussion that goes about that, and I'm not going to get into that, but it says they clearly left it. They left their first love, and consequently, they had moved away from the most important thing. Out of everything else that was going on, this perseverance, this endurance, this love for the truth, this standing up against evil, you know, all of these things that Jesus commends them for, they had moved away from the most important thing. What was that? Their relationship with Jesus. And in doing so, they began to identify themselves by what they did and not by whom they knew. And we are. We are a service-oriented church. We are. God has opened up many opportunities for us with the Bridge Youth Center, with our connection with U-Turn, with the Pregnancy Center, with the Chaplaincy Ministry, with our preschool I'm sure I forgot some of the other things. But the point is, is we're a service-oriented church, and we need to be careful because this is who we are. God's called us to in our ministry, and we need to be careful that we don't identify ourselves by these service things that we have into our community, but rather we identify ourselves by our relationship with Jesus, by who we know, by not what we do. I want to be known as the church that loves Jesus, not by the church who has a youth center downtown. I want to be known as the church who loves Jesus, and because of that, we have a youth center downtown. And that's the key of what God's talking about here. And in my own life, I want that to know, I want, that's what I want people to know most about, is that I love Jesus. Not that I'm a pastor. 
And for you, whatever that, however that works, be known by your relationship, be identified by your relationship with Jesus. You see, without a love relationship for Jesus, you know what they were left with? A dead religion. Literally did works and not a life-giving relationship. Now, without a doubt, what we do for God is important. Don't get me wrong. But more importantly than what we do is the why we do what we do. Right? In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about this to the Christians in Corinth, saying in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. In other words, Paul is saying, think of the most eloquent speaker you can think of. And even with these angelic tongues, I can do these awesome things. He says, even if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I've become nothing more than a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Ging, ging, ging. I remember the gong show. That just popped in my mind. Some of you remember that too. But, I mean, you're just going around and gonging in people's ears, in their face. That's offensive without love. And he goes, and though I even have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge... And though I have faith so that I could even move a mountain but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, in other words, you sell everything you have, the shirt off your back, the house you live in, the cars you drive, the guns in your safe. Ooh. (laughs) You do all of that to go and feed the poor and even though you give up your body to be burned, but have not love, it profits nothing. And love is so important because the purpose of the church is to share Jesus with broken people and to demonstrate the love that Jesus has for them to them. But without a love relationship with Jesus, this will not happen no matter how many programs or activities a church has. Now usually when we have left our first love is because we've begun to love something else. Hear that. When we've left our first love is because we begin to love something else. Idols, the Bible calls it, in relationship to our in regards to our relationship with God. And an idol can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be an activity. In other words, anything that becomes more important to us than God. However, as Jesus went on to encourage the Ephesians on what they needed to do, we see that if or when we realize that if we have left our first love, we should, according to verse 5, remember. Remember, guys, remember your bride standing there on her wedding day. Remember. Remember that time when Jesus grabbed a hold of you and you saw him face to face and he said, you're forgiven. And the weight of your sin was taken off of you. And the condemnation that you were under, you were set free from. And you realized that the, 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 the holes in his hands, his feet, and his side was for you. Remember that love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember that first love, the cross, the grace, the forgiveness, the freedom, the hope, the joy, the redemption, the newness of life that we've received freely. Remember. Repent. Turn around. You realize you've been heading in the wrong direction? You've given your affection to other things for other reasons? Turn around. Head the other direction. Stop pursuing that something or someone other than Jesus. This is the plan. Repent. Remember, repent, turn around. And the fact of the matter is, is that we can, we can run a great distance from God as we head a certain direction for certain things, we can run a great distance from God, but thankful it only takes one step to return to Him. However, we must be willing to turn away from the things that we have given our love to, and, and, and that's the last part, return. Remember, repent, return. 
And, and, and what does that return? Do the first work. What was the first work that you were called to? Believe. Right? Believe. Come to Jesus, believe in him, trust in him, spend time with him. You see, we can spend so much time in God's word preparing for things that God has called us to and spend much time in prayer, even for ourselves and other people. But you know what? First, we must seek God for ourselves. For ourselves. For that relationship. For that knowledge of who he is. To be in his presence. And then in verses 6 through 7, Justin, if you want to come up, we'll end with this. It says, but this you have, that you, that you hate the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, going to get into their, their despising of the evil things, willing to deal with stuff. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, in all this, guys, this, even in this admonition, this repent, um, re- remember, repent, return, in all of it, there's a promise attached to it, a promise to the overcomer to eat from the tree of life. Remember, man was removed from the, the tree of life because of his sin in the Garden of Eden. Remember, there were two trees, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and the tree of life. And um, when man's sin was locked out of the Garden Eden and, and he could not get to the tree of life. But you know what, at the end of this book, Revelation chapter 22, you can go and read ahead. We're going to get to see that tree again, that very same tree that once grew in the Garden of Eden. It'll be back in the new heaven and in the new earth in Revelation chapter 22. And, and, and the, the, the promise to the overcomer is that we'll eat the tree of life. If we stay in this love relationship with Jesus through this thing, we stumble, we fall, we stray. Remember, repent, return. It's that simple. And what Jesus is telling us is, is he's saying, he says, if you maintain that love relationship, believing in him whom he sent, that simple, that simple, he says, you're going to be there on that day when the new heaven is, the new earth is built, and you're going to be able to eat of the tree of life. Listen, First John chapter 5, if you guys will stand, we'll end with this, verses 4 through 5. It says, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that the overcomer that ha- or this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's faith. So who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. I pray, Lord, that we would come back to that knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you've done for us, that you're the Son of God who died on the cross for us, and that if we believe in you, and confess our sins before you, that you'd be faithful and just to forgive them. Lord, that you would restore us back to you even now. In these areas, maybe even as a church, where we've become prideful, perhaps, Lord, in the things that we do, that you've called us to do, that you've given us to do. And and if that's how we've taken an identity on, I pray, God, that you'd forgive us and that we we would relish in the fact that we know you. And in our lives, personally, individually, Lord, May we fall even more in love with you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.